going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. Gentlemen, what's going on today? Not too much. It's crazy. We're in like the holidays and everything. Yep. Time flies. AJ, it's cool. good to be home. School going well? It's it's done. It's done, done for the semester? For the semester. Time. All right. AJ's done. You already had finals? Yeah. Whether school's done or not, I'm done. So how long are you out? Like a month? Maybe. Maybe mm-hmm. 13 days. You believe that was a thing? Yeah, that sounds great. Of course, I can't say anything. I was off for like a month. <laughs> I was off for like a time. month in between jobs. Yeah, that's probably the last time it'll happen for a long time. I, I'm thinking about quitting more often. <laughs> yes, <laughs> sounds like, like a really fun thing to do. Like, yeah, this is great. I just get a <laughs> just, week off, just not have to work a month for a couple off, weeks. Whatever it was. Yeah, this is fantastic. Yeah, maybe um, I'll quit this year. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's been a minute since we recorded. We I had know. a bunch of stuff come up with traveling and holidays and whatnot. So it's always the way it is in December. It's been, been a couple weeks. It's good to be back. So it's not just that we released them a couple weeks ago. This is actually the first time we've recorded <laughs> in a couple weeks. Yeah. So uh, glad we could get back to it. Uh, for those of you who didn't read the title, this is an accredited episode, thanks to our friends at FreeCE.com. Um, so if you are an unlimited member of FreeCE.com, you can listen to this episode and then either go to their website or we'll also have a link in the show notes that you can go to. It'll take you to FreeCE.com and we will give you a password, uh, which in this for this episode, it's going to be PAIN, P-A-I-N, all capital letters. And when you put in that password for this episode, you will get uh, access to the post-activity test. Go ahead and knock that out. And once you've passed that, you get your one hour of continuing education credit for pharmacists and nurses. And uh, we have several others to choose from. And so, again, if you are a FreeCE unlimited membership holder, then you have access to all of our accredited episodes. And, uh, you know, you can listen to and get as much CE as we have on there. And uh, you also obviously get access to all their other content, which is, you know, leads me to my next point. And that is if you're not a free C unlimited member, make sure you check that out and consider joining. Uh, definitely you'll get your money's worth and have lots and lots of good continuing education content, not just the podcast, but all kinds of live events and things. So definitely worth the, uh, the money and you get a discount uh, in the show notes by using our discount code as well. So uh, make sure that uh, you check them out and that's the only way to get credit. So today, the reason why the password is pain is because mm-hmm. we're going to be talking about chronic pain management and uh, opioids and some of other our other non-opioid medications that are utilized, kind of just giving an overview of yeah. different options that are out there. Well, this is a big, complicated topic, and obviously opioids end up in the news a lot. Um, so we're going to talk about the different types of pain, but we're going to focus mostly on chronic pain. Um, there are a lot of non-opioid medications that should be tried before you get to opioids. I feel like we actually don't talk about opioids a whole lot because when they come up, it's like, yeah, reserve those for last line, and then we talk about the other stuff. So we're going to hit opioids um, relatively hard today just to make sure that we've, we've done a good overview of it. Um, yeah, what was our last opioid episode? Was it opioid use disorder? I think it was actual opioid use disorder, okay. which we talked more about the drugs used to treat opioid use yeah. disorder as opposed to actual actually managing opioids. patients with opioids. So, yeah. um, I mean, I can't even think of a time that we've actually kind just of... Just done straight opioids. Just done straight opioids. So, okay. this, that's not exactly what this is, but we will go through a lot of opioids. Yeah. Um, as far as the classifications of pain, so just generally speaking, there's acute and chronic pain. So, acute pain being some sort of surgery or acute illness or a trauma. Um and there's not really a duration specific to that, but you can kind of get a good idea of what acute pain might be. Chronic pain would be ongoing, recurrent pain, lasting a long time, and generally affects a patient's uh, quality of life, their day-to-day life, their functioning, and that's important. Um, you can't always identify the etiology. We'll talk about some instances of that, uh, and it can result in changes in nerve function and transmission. And then there's cancer pain, which they separate especially when it comes to opioids a lot of what we'll talk about is treating chronic pain that isn't related to cancer patients when it comes to cancer patients um, it's kind of a whole different ball game Um, it's associated with a a life-threatening condition it's also known as malignant pain Um, and you have to you you have to use opioids in these patients Um, and so that's why they a lot of the warnings we give about evaluating patients being appropriate to use opioids in and a lot of the um safety around starting with other things and whatnot doesn't necessarily apply to cancer pain patients. AJ, quiz time. Would you guess the 
economic burden of chronic pain alone in the United States is at, annually. At least $1 billion. According to one, one uh, statistic, $500 billion annually. I'm assuming that it accounts for overdoses and things like that from the adverse side of opioid use as well. But I'd imagine. That's a lot of money. Pop quiz. Yeah, first time we've done that. Did you get nervous? I, I got it right. Wow. <laughs> that was correct. We'll give it half credit. It's like, uh, yeah, you you didn't go over, which is, that would be an issue at on. At least. On you said it, yeah, that's true. You weren't wrong there. Yeah. <laughs> it's at least one. You qualified it. <laughs> that's a good good strategy, AJ. Well done. Um, yeah, so, and, and AJ, feel free to jump in on this because I know you've been looking at some of these types of things as far as like the excitatory and inhibitory neurotransmitters, but, um, you know, Pain obviously is something that is designed to, to keep people from harm and and whatnot. So when we think about like adaptive pain, um, you know, there's some sort of some sort of a noxious stimuli, whether it be temperature extremes, it could be trauma, um, there could be some sort of uh, other irritation, whether it be chemical or whatnot. But th- that's the the nociceptive pain is coming from the actual stimulation of those receptors, and it's designed to again to allow someone to. <clears throat> to stop whatever that action is and, and avoid that, that stimuli so that they're not experiencing that anymore. Um, and you know, as far as your, your body's interpretation of that, um, depending on, um, how it's sort of signaling and whatnot, it can be sort of a very localized generalized or a localized area that's very pinpoint. Um, and then depending on, uh, you know, other areas of the nervous system, it could be just a very generalized, not, um, you know, pinpoint area that you can actually see the pain's coming from more, you know, sort of a, uh, air, a larger area, if you will. Um, but a, a lot of the non-opioids tend to be dealing with things that are kind of calming down sort of the excitatory neurotransmitter expression. So like the glutamate, substance P, things like that. Um, and then upregulating some of our inhibitory neurotransmitters. So like our norepinephrine, um, in this case, uh, things like GABA, um, you know, other inhibitory neurotransmitters. And so you'll see some of our like anticonvulsants and things being utilized to some extent. I think that's one of those things that everybody, not just patients, but doctors take that very nociceptive approach to pain and then not acknowledging the non-nociceptive aspect where it's neuropathic and you've got inflammation and and lesions here with these nerves. Uh, It's, it's, you got to take it from the ascending versus descending pathway. If you've got a deficiency in that in the descending pathway, then that's sort of like the entirety of the the pain dulling sensation that that approach. And so it's it's more important to focus on the descending pathway and the non nociceptive pain for patients that are in chronic pain and cancers and things like that. And so everybody shies away from opioids, and it's really important because those opioids will help promote the utilization of those receptors, upregulation of a lot of those things that are not acknowledged with non-opioid pain medications. Yeah, and historically, uh, the non-nociceptive pain disorders like fibromyalgia or other things that are kind of central pain disorders, a lot of times they do coincide with some sort of psych issue, but previously it was they were kind of chalked up to psych issues as opposed to like an actual pain disorder, which now we know isn't true, and there's medications that can be used to to be effective there. but a lot of those types of patients will be diagnosed very, or at least start having issues very early in life. And so it's kind of a chicken or egg thing, whether or not it leads to them having a lot of anxiety or, you know, um, issues with the healthcare system, or if that or was the also nerve pain is what's leading nerve, to the anxiety. Right. Um, I did want to define some terms. Uh, we've been using a couple of them like nociceptive, nociceptive pain is kind of like, I guess, similar to saying adaptive pain. It's like a normal pain response, pain that arises from an actual or threatened damage to non neural tissue and is due to the activation of nociceptors. Other types of pain would be kind of considered non-nociceptive pain or maladaptive. maladaptive. It's kind of a lot of different type, a lot of different terms for it. But more specifically, um, allodonia, for instance, is a pain due to a stimulus that does not normally provoke pain. Like um, I don't know, rubbing my leg, but for whatever reason, it is causing me pain because I, I have a maladaptive response to that. Um, hyperalgesia, increased pain from stimulus that normally provokes pain. So I'm, I'm pinching myself, but instead of it just being like, you know, annoying, it's extremely painful because I have hyperalgesia. Central sensitization is increased responsiveness of the nociceptive neurons in the central nervous system to their normal or subthreshold afferent input. And then neuropathic pain. Neuropathic pain is caused by, um, uh, 
AJ mentioned it, but a lesion or disease of the somatosensory nervous system. So all this is important because it's going to determine what we can use to treat that specific type of chronic pain or type of even acute pain. And, and we'll go through like the, you know, the different opioids and more medication options and things like that. But, you know, it is important to consider some non-pharmacological treatment options. And in fact, that's really where the CDC guideline for prescribing opioids starts um, as far as, you know, looking at non-pharmacological options is, and then from there, non-opioid modalities as, as well. Those would be preferred over opioids because we obviously have seen what happens with long-term chronic use of opioids. You get it an opioid epidemic. <laughs> and so um, non-pharmacological options, there's there's several that are available. And, uh, you know, things like we say like exercise, you know, diet, those weight loss, those are all important things pretty much for any disease state as we've seen over the course of every pretty much every episode we talk about some form of that. But uh, there's been a lot of different like complementary type um, integrative approaches to chronic pain as well. So just to give you a couple examples, um, things like Tai Chi, which is like a form of um, Chinese martial arts that's like very slow moving and just concentrates on like flowing. It almost looks like a, a cool version of yoga. Yeah, um, but standing up, right? But it is a lot of it, yeah, standing up. And it looks, it's like a yoga and kung fu mix kind of yeah. thing. It's got like those big like Yoga you know, food. Yeah, those movements, those big broad movements stuff, but it's it's very slow moving and um, concentrated. And it's uh, there's evidence that shows that osteoarthritis, uh, chronic lower back pain, and fibromyalgia have been improved with Tai Chi. Um, same thing with yoga. Uh, you know, if you want just traditional yoga, um, acupuncture actually has some evidence, both acute and chronic. So the lower back pain, osteoarthritis. Um, migraine, neck pain, shoulder pain, those have all been, acupuncture has been studied for all those. Uh, and also in an acute setting where patients are having um, post-surgical pain and ankle sprains even, you know, there's been data showing that acupuncture can be um, helpful. And uh, massage, there's mindfulness, meditation, relaxation techniques um, that can help as well um, that have, so like burn patients, things like that from an, an acute standpoint, and then lower back pain and some other uh, chronic conditions, fibromyalgia as well. Um, there's some evidence that those different mindfulness type techniques um, can be efficacious. Um, there's also uh, like body or biofeedback things where there's like this you basically are connected to like heart rate and monitors and like blood pressure monitors things like that that as the patient uh sort of like notices the heart rate going up or the blood pressure going up you can kind of use that information to alter thoughts and behaviors and and whatnot um so there's actually some data in in lower back pain using that as well fibromyalgia um and then manipulation you know would be like chiropractors things like that um i think obviously you got to be real careful with with stuff like that because there's just like anything else there's some great ones and there's some not some not so great ones so i think it depends on who you're going to but at least uh considering some of the non-pharmacological options um i think is really important that uh i know pharmacists uh we as pharmacists tend to just yeah what you know, pharmacotherapy can we jump to but for chronic pain we want to avoid medication if possible yeah and i think it's important limit. because we want to we want to try to get them to a functional place without having to use opioids if we need to use them we need to use them but we want to try to get them to that spot so unfortunately a lot of patients think that if we're recommending these things or prescribing non-opioid medications in a chronic pain situation that we're just kicking the can and trying to avoid the opioid but in a way, that's true, but we're trying to get them to a good place without having to do that only because of the, some of the negative outcomes that we see with long-term opioid use. But we'll talk about how to safely use them. Um, so say that the non-pharmacologic option does not work or does not work well enough. We still want to continue it if they had some benefit, and then we start to add on the non-opioid um, pain medications. So if it's no susceptive pain and there's a known inflammatory process, then NSAIDs would be um, a first-line option there, of course. Um, acetaminophen, though combined with many opioids, um, doesn't really have great data for chronic pain. Uh, the other non-acetaminophen um, NSAIDs seem to work better, so I would reserve acetaminophen for later down the line. Um, but yeah, you would start with, with NSAIDs first, and that would be if it's a nociceptive pain. And 
there's obviously a, a whole bunch of different NSAIDs we could go with. Um, I think historically, the, the majority of us are going to be familiar with naproxen, ibuprofen, things of that nature. Um, we, we won't go into detail about this today, but I would say you also have to consider cardiovascular risk. You have to consider the renal you know, risks of having in a long-term NSAID use, blood pr- effects on, you know, blood pressure, all kinds of, you know, things, the, the GI bleed risk, things of that nature. So, um, I typically tend to, to utilize, um, naproxen is my go-to if they do have cardiovascular disease. Um, there's that whole debate around using like celecoxib in somebody who has, uh, cardiovascular disease or has like a history of GI bleed, things like that. Um, the data, the, the precision trial was the one that looked at that and, um, it wasn't very convincing. So I would, I tend to go with naproxen, but just keeping in mind the other comorbidities and not just jumping right to ibuprofen or, you know, meloxicam or what have you, you know, that there's definitely intricacies between the NSAIDs as well. Right. Um, if it's a non-nociceptive pain, like a neuropathic pain, central sensitization pain disorder, um, also called a functional pain disorder. Um, if it's a central sensitization pain disorder, then antidepressants are a good option here. Uh, specifically, we think of um, certain TCAs and um, SNRIs specifically. SSRIs are not considered first-line treatment uh, in this situation. They don't have the same data that the SNRIs do. Um, so we're thinking duloxetine, uh, venlafaxine, uh, milnasopran is is included in there. Um, I imagine you'd probably for fibro. go for fibro, um, and, or TCAs. Um, of course, there's a slew of side effects to go along with these medications that we've addressed in other episodes too. Um, Elevil is generally the most sedating of the TCA options, um, but that would be probably your first line consideration for a central sensation disorder. Especially if you're dealing with pain that's like neuropathic in nature, like the peripheral neuropathic pain. So post-hepatic neuralgia or diabetic neuropathy, those obviously are go-tos because we're trying to allow more norepinephrine available in the system. Right. Um, Other options for neuropathic pain, of course, gabapentin and pregabalin you see a lot. I think gabapentin is the only FDA approval it has, I think, is is post-herpetic neuralgia. Um, For which one? Gabapentin, right? For in general? I think it's like the only, like if you look at the label, it just says post-herpetic neuralgia. I think that's the... uh... I feel like that's the, 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 what's that new gabapentin for the, for uh, in a carabel, the oh. gabapentin in a carabel, the horizont or something. Oh, maybe it is. Either way, it's used for off-label for a lot of different things. Um, but, uh, uh post neuralgia, nerve pain, gabapentin is an option. Also pregabalin, um, use caution in elderly patients cause it, it can be uh, sedating and pregabalin is controlled in a lot of, uh, states, but those are options. Uh, and then also, interestingly, as far as anti-seizure medications go, carbamazepine or uh, even oxycarbazepine in some instances can be used, and that's more specific for um, like trigeminal nerve pain specifically is what they're used for. Hey, Mike, pop quiz. Mm-hmm. Pregabalin, gabapentin, what neurotransmitter? Does it work on GABA receptors? No, it works on the alpha-2 delta subunit of the L-type calcium channel blocker. AJ, next question, please. Don't you ever try to quiz me, AJ. <laughs> He just no, looked it does not. Up. Work. We got it on camera. I did not look it up. I was actually looking up the horizont thing, just so we are all clear. You know, it is that horizont version of gabapentin. The once it is, is the one that's made for uh, post-traumatic neuralgia or restless leg syndrome. The other gabapentin has various approvals. So, sorry, that's the confusion for that. Sorry, I got distracted, and then AJ tried to put put me on <laughs> put me on blast <laughs> live on air. Um, sorry, Cole. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Nope, that was it. Uh, antidepressants and. Um anesthesia medications. Uh, and I, I do think that that's an important part too, is like looking at comorbidities and assessing, you know, if they do have some component of like restless leg syndrome or something like that, that may lead you to one of these. If, if not just the overall treatment, it may, you know, lead you down this path of like an augmentation option or something like that. So adding gabapentin to the regimen or something along those lines. So keep in mind that um, some of these medications obviously, you know, can, can treat more than just the pain. So looking at comorbidities just like we always do with any other disease state is going to be really important. And as a provider, not being afraid to continue to learn. I think one thing that a lot of people forget to remember with the cyclooxygenase enzyme is that COX-1 is expressed on almost every cell in the body. And so you've got COX-1 and COX-2, but COX-1 
is also important for homeostasis of most cells and most processes. And so when you don't want to use gabapentin or you don't want to use opioids and you're pushing patients towards these NSAIDs, you're still disrupting homeostasis. You're still preventing the, the production of thromboxane, et cetera. And so it's not an easy, quick fix. It's something that you're pushing that you know, problem down the line to eventually where you could have development of, of worse chronic symptoms over time. Good stuff. All right. So what do you guys want to go from here as far as medication? We kind of just skimmed through a bunch of the non-opioids. Yeah. I mean, other things that are used in some situations, we didn't really talk about topical stuff much, but there's topical NSAIDs. Um, Acetic acid. What's diclofenac? Topical lidocaine. Yeah. And diclofenac is the big NSAID topical. Yeah. I feel like that's in like what? It's three or four different formulations. Yeah. It's relatively more COX-2 selective too. Yeah, and you'll see like the pinset pump yeah. and stuff like that, um, and then lidocaine and capsaicin. So capsaicin is an interesting one because yeah. that's depleting your substance P, right? So like that's one of your excitatory neurotransmitters. So you disrupt substance P, you're basically depleting substance P, basically. So they can't give you that same response. But capsaicin cream is like the only time we really think of you know that being that product being utilized, and it's. Uh, something you have to use three or four times a day. Um, usually you see it for like hand osteoarthritis, something like that, but you have to use it three or four times a day for weeks in order for it to actually deplete your substance P. So it's not a super, you know, reasonable option for most patients because a lot of times they don't want to have to apply something that often. Um, but there is actually another version of, of that that's available as a 8% patch. Um, that you can use for neuropathy, which I have you ever heard of that call before we were looking at I feel at like I had seen it prescribed once and I couldn't order it. Good. Well, it has to be applied in the provider's office. So oh, it's okay. not something a pharmacy can just order it. Um, but it's a, a patch that you would basically apply to the area and, um, yeah, they do it in the office and then they can be retreated in a few months if, if it's not enough. But, um, yeah, what's I, the normal stuff? What's the normal percentage? Uh, the capsaicin cream, I, like it's really small, but the 8% patch is like way more. But yeah. I want to say it's like a percent, like a half of a percentage yeah. or something. Yeah. But the 8% patch is like literally you can only, it's only supposed to be administered under the supervision of a physician or provider. Right. Walgreens capsaicin cream is 0.1%. So I said 0.5. I was wrong. Like 80 times. Yeah. More potent. So. You got a REMS program for capsaicin? <laughs> it's probably the, uh, the patches I would imagine. I think so. But, um, yeah, Quintenza, Quintenza is the, uh, brand name for that. But, um, it kind of interesting, but it does, uh, you have to monitor blood pressure and, and things of that nature for while you're, while the patches are in place. And so they apply, the one to four patches for about 60 minutes. Um, max is four patches. And then uh, every three months is how the, the minimum as far as how long you have to wait before reapplying. Interesting. But yeah, so if it's a pain, chronic pain due to diabetic neuropathy, something along those lines, don't forget about that option because hmm. I've never personally used it, but it does sound like something I actually know of a patient that that might not be a bad option for. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like like they were saying, diclofenac, uh, liquids, patches, um, gels, those are all th various formulations, and lidocaine is the other one that's yeah. available as a lot of different topical options. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, we have like our counter irritants, like our menthols and all that, uh, which are basically just to get your, <laughs> trick, trick your mind so it's not, mind off yeah, pain. yeah, basically, for, for uh, oversimplification. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so the, the, trying to utilize all those and, and not, again, not just jumping to opioids if you can help it um, and trying to exhausting some of your other options first, if, if possible, yeah. especially in a non-cancer patient. It's just so much safer. Jump it into is. some of these opioids. Let's do it. So I'll, I'll give some definitions. So an opiate versus an opioid. An opiate is naturally occurring, and this is what you used to see prior to the 1980s. An opioid is synthetic or semi-synthetic drugs that mimic the action of opiates. And then narcotics are a group of drugs with actions that mimic those of morphine that can cause classic triad of respiratory depression, pinpoint pupils, and decreased mental status. A lot of that stuff is used interchangeably, and for the most part, it, it reasonably can, but there are subtle differences between them. So just to give some examples of like natural opioids would be like, um, you know, original opium and then morphine, codeine, some of the older opioids that we think about um, are semi-synthetic 
opioids would be like our hydrocodone, hydromorphone, oxymorphone, things of that nature. Heroin. Heroin, exactly. Um, and then our synthetic, our like full synthetic opioids would be our like mepiridine, uh, methadone, fentanyl, things of that, of that yep. nature. Yep. And we have mixed agonist antagonists, um, which presumably would, would reduce the risk of overdose and respiratory depression. Buprenorphine, you're probably very familiar with. Uh, there's also nalbuthine, butorphanol. Um, there's opioid antagonists like naloxone um, and naltrexone, which we're, f- we're familiar with. And um, they're clinically utilized as analgesic anesthetic agents. Um, and of course, they're available in all different routes, uh, parenteral, oral, inhalation, and of course, our drugs of abuse. And I think like it's important too to keep in mind like the agonist antagonist. Cause it sounds a little confusing, but they're talking about the different opioid receptors. So like the mu opioid receptor, it's going to have some agonism activity or some partial agonism, and then it's going to be an antagonist at like the kappa um, opioid receptors. And so like the risk of like colosan respiratory depression, things like that, are in theory lower, um, but you're still getting some of the analgesic properties or. You know, buprenorphines, you know, when it's used for substance abuse can be is, is basically controlling like the withdrawal effect and, and taking care of the, the craving, if you will, for an opioid without giving the full response. Right. Um, they inhibit the ascending pathway, altering the perception of pain. The big adverse effects that we're concerned about and what ends up killing people is the respiratory depression um, also causes CNS depression and constipation. So that's a big um uh, complaint of patients on chronic opioid therapy. Um, as far as the dosing, it's depends. So if a patient is opioid tolerant, they've been on opioids before, uh, they will very likely require higher doses to achieve the same benefit as somebody who's opioid naive. And it can be dangerous to give them, um, the same dose that you give somebody who's opioid tolerant. Um, the dose frequently needs to be adjusted, um, and should be done, uh, with care uh, and uh, with close monitoring. Um, there's intermediate release to extended release conversions, and frequently for a, a new patient starting opioids, they're going to recommend the immediate release options as being safer. Um, and then when discontinuing, unless there is an urgent need to discontinue because it could cause um, significant harm, it needs to be done slowly. Um, for example, decrease by 25 to 50% over two to four days to, to, uh, prevent a withdrawal. And, you know, when we think about the, you know, the monitoring parameters, obviously when the person's first being started on an opioid, uh, or a, there's a dose change or anything, you know, we want to evaluate, you know, sort of within the first one to maybe four weeks at max to kind of see how they're doing. But by the time you're treating chronically, they've, they've probably already been on you know, opioids for a little bit of time and, and try other things. But if you're, you're going to say, okay, we're going to give you opioids for a chronic period of time. It is important even when you're, anytime you're changing dose to again, bring that initially for that quick follow-up. And then still, even if they've been on it chronically, reevaluating the, the benefit versus the risk um, every one to three months um, would be ideal. And then a continually assessing for their personal risks of an overdose or becoming dependent uh, or developing opioid use disorder. Uh, and then drug, drug testing when they come in to get refills and things like that to assess for anything else. And that's not so much of a, you know, gotcha kind of thing. It's, it's if they were to have benzos or they were to have something else safety in their system, thing. it's a safety thing. Yeah. And, and then we always think of like abusing the medication as far as an overdose, like they took too much of it or they took too high of it, whatever. But really the overdose risk goes up pretty significantly when somebody has certain, you know, health conditions as well, COPD, obstructive sleep apnea, yeah. alcohol use. Um, and then especially if they're on things like benzodiazepines, um, carcipital, the muscle relaxant, that those can also greatly increase the risk of overdose if used with an opioid. But a patient with COPD that is somebody we don't genuinely you know, generally kind of just assume is more at risk, but that absolutely would be somebody who's more at risk for respiratory depression than right. somebody even, who's not. Even to that point, Mike, uh, even without the comorbidities, the long-term administration of those opioid antagonists will lead to upregulation of the expression of opioid receptors. And so even if a patient's been, you know, on these opioid antagonists for years, now they're even more susceptible to overdoses because they've got twice as many opioid receptors expressed. And so the same patient, you know, coming in the same dose, the same thing they've always done, 
we'll put them in the hospital, we'll, we'll send them into respiratory depression. And that, you know, it's something that they had no comorbidities for, they had no, you know, potential of risk or abuse before now you know, it is an issue. Right. And it's kind of similar thing with hyperalgesia related to long-term opioid use that just using opioids is going to cause them to be more sensitive to pain. Um, yeah. It's like a hyper, hyper, hyperalgesia. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's an important thing too, to like remind patients of is like the, you're going to have to, not just for tolerance sake, but you're going to have to potentially go up in the dose because you do become right. almost more sensitive to pain over time. Which then becomes least, more dangerous just right. using it generally. And pretty much at all, not at all costs, but as much as we can, we want to avoid using benzos along with them. Of course, be, having chronic pain frequently comes along with other psychiatric conditions like anxiety and depression. Uh, but go back to our general anxiety disorder mm -hmm. episode and, and we walk through the algorithm where frequently benzos are reserved for, you know, patients who've tried many other things. And so we don't want that to be for sure to be a first line that we're using along with opioids because of the risk. But absolutely done all the time. Those mood alterations come from the mesocortical dopamine system. That's the only t tidbit that I'm going to throw in there. The medicinal chemistry aspect is that the inhibition of that GABAergic activity inhibits the dopamine. And so when you've got the neurotransmitter imbalance in the brain coming from opioid use, then you're just throwing everything out of whack over time. Well, and you're getting that the release of dopamine when you do take a dose of an opioid, right? So mm -hmm. the over time, just like with anything else, like stimulants or anything else, you either need more of it to get the same release or you're going to end up, you know, you're shutting down your, your dopamine yeah, production. production and yeah. whatnot. So yeah, yeah. It, the mood is definitely a big thing to watch for when you're coming off of it. Right. So natural opioid um, agonists that we're familiar with, morphine has all sorts of formulations, comes in liquid, media release, extended release, um, injectable IM and IV, uh, rectal and intrathecal, uh, which thank you for that intrathecal one um, during uh, pregnancy. Don't they include morphine in that little cocktail? I think so. Yeah. Um, thank you. Uh, as far as chronic pain goes, I, mean, I definitely saw like a media release and extended release morphine used. I mean, if we're going to use one, a media release is safer. Um, everything's calculated in morphine milliequivalents. It's funny that they don't use morphine. Um, well, and I think a lot of the studies too use that as kind of like the standards of like oxymorphone, hydromorphone. Some of those have been compared to morphine and not seen to be more effective right. or better efficacy. They just have to use more of a higher dose rather than morphine. Right. So we have other things that have kind of abuse deterrent potential mm -hmm. branded names and things like that, which I think we have um, morphine in that too. Yeah. Morphabond. Morphabond. Yeah. Yeah. Which is ER. Um, I think those are designed basically to where they're only abuse deterrent if the person were to like break down the, the actual tablet. Yes. So like that's what. So it could still be, ta it could still be still taken be orally. Taken orally. Just couldn't you just be. can't. Break it down or, or melt it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's the gold standard and that's what people use to kind of evaluate the risk of overdose. If you're looking at a PDMP or something like that, very affordable. If you're not looking at those newer brand name versions. Um, and like I said, it has a lot of dosage forms. Um, renally compromised patients in general are going to be at kind of an increased risk for overdose with opioids, um, specifically for morphine. You want to avoid using it in patients with creatinine clearance less than 30. Um, it also inhibits the release of gonadotropin releasing hormone from the hypothalamus, which can lead to decreased testosterone and cortisol. And so you can have something called opioid induced hypogonadism. Um, so in males, this may, um, have, they may present with symptoms of ED, decreased libido, um, and maybe even their analgesic effect if not, is not as good. Uh, pay, uh, women may see alopecia, amenorrhea, um, depression. Uh, as well as decreased analgesic efficacy. That goes back to that dopamine. The prolactin release is inhibited, I think, or it's increased due to the inhibition of the dopamine. And so you've got the neuroendocrine effects in addition to everything else. And I feel like that's something that's a, you know, just when you're trying to convince someone, let's say for diabetes care, you're trying to convince them to be on a medication or follow a certain diet especially with the male patients, at least in my experience, you know, it's like, eh, I'm not, you know, my kidney's cool, my nerves, whatever. But it's like when you say, well, erectile dysfunction can improve yeah. and, and, or can happen if you don't get this under control. Right. That's a real quick way to get your male patients right. to get on board. Sold. Show me the treadmill. Yeah. And so I feel like same thing with this. If you're trying to convince someone to maybe try an alternative to an opioid or at least taper down or what have you, if they are having issues, male or female with um, some of these types of endocrine, you know, issues, um, low testosterone, 
testosterone, you know, low estrogen symptoms for females. Yeah, I think that that's a good point that I, I don't know. It doesn't, it's not the first thing that comes to my mind. So I feel like it's, it's a really either. good thing and, to bring up to patients. I mean, you're probably going to be hard pressed to run into patients these days who aren't familiar with the concerns, at least generally, as far as like just being dangerous for overdose. Mm-hmm. That's what they think of. Um, but if you can, you know, talk to them about some other lifestyle effects, like, hey, this can actually have these other, I know that you're aware of this and you're okay with this risk, but there's these other things, which is why we want to try these first things first, which I still think it's reasonable to have tried and failed all the other ones. Yeah. As best or or even if you're trying to convince someone to maybe see if they can taper off. Decrease of them. the dose, yeah. just taper off. Yeah. yeah. And if nothing else, it's just something to have, in, you know, in the back of your mind for if you are experiencing a patient that is having ED or they're having loss of libido or something like that, then if they are on chronic opioids, at least that might give you an idea of where that's coming from versus just assuming that's low testosterone. Right. Or and it's not like using a just side of, age. It's not like using a side effect as a threat or anything. It's yeah. just giving them the whole picture and then knowing that it might, you know, cause them to make a different decision or something. Yeah. We're not manipulating, even though it sounds a little we're bit We're just like... motivationally interviewing. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're doing. Yeah, that's what we're doing. <laughs> so morphine, that's kind of our old gold standard, but uh, one of the other older drugs that really you don't see too often, uh, especially by itself, is codeine. Um, it's a prodrug of morphine, basically. And uh, nowadays, it's usually utilized with like um, com- com- combination products like codeine and uh, chlorpheniramine pseudoephedrine. It's like all put together, or codeine and promethazine um, for the fenergan with codeine. But uh, codeine and Tylenol, like Tylenol number three, is, is another option that you typically, if you are going to see codeine utilized, that's where it would be. Um, there is plain codeine, which is actually a C2 versus the other ones being C3 or up to C5, depending on the combo it's in. But the plain codeine just by itself is a C2, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, it does have a box warning for that makes no sense, does it? I think it's I think it's the whole idea of like the Tylenol piece of it, I guess, would inhibit the risk of like overdose a little bit because you would have to take enough Tylenol to mess up your liver before you get reached overdose. I I've heard a few people mention that, but I think that's part of it. Um, kind of like where butabitol and Tylenol mm. in the fewer state oh, is yeah. not a control, but if you use aspirin and butabitol, it, it is, is a control. Yeah. I think it's just the, the Tylenol somehow, which I don't know how It's like a rate actually, limiting step for yeah. an actual dangerous overdose. And I don't know how true that is as far as like yeah. real world application, but I think that's the theory behind it's it. It's really interesting how they come up with these two. I don't know if this is the case for everything, and maybe I'm talking out of my side of my neck like I did with the gabapentin earlier, but I was reading about how it was a drug that I was working with that was in the process of getting its controlled substance class or whatever. Um, and basically what they were doing was, um, I could be getting this totally wrong, but I'm pretty sure they would give a patient, patients a benzo basically, and then give them the study drug and then have them fill out a questionnaire about how it affected them. And just comparing it to a benzo was how they determined it's like, uh, addictive potential, hmm. abuse potential. That's weird. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. I should probably double check. But yeah. I'm pretty we'll but double I mean, check that. How don't, else do they do that though? Don't like, quote us on that. I mean, think about like how do they determine it? So I think do. about it. Codeine gets broken down into morphine, right? And morphine gets broken down in the liver via glucuronidation. If Tylenol is being broken down in the liver via sulfation and glucuronidation, and the third mechanism it produces NAPQI, if you're utilizing all of the glucuronidine then you're pushing all of the Tylenol towards that NAPQI pathway. So it's so less it increases that, that process. The, well, and that's the, to- the toxic metabolite that glutathione binds to, right? Exactly. Yeah, so then that would make sense. Yeah, good job, AJ. That's why we keep you around, dude. Because that's, that's, I'm glad you're doing the PhD program now. This is valuable, valuable insight. I like this. Also, it's in like cough and cold syrups. Isn't it nuts how like many fraudulent scripts are for that. Like, That's I, like I thought go-to. it was overblown, but like it happens all the time. Codeine with promethazine, 473. Crazy. Thanks a lot, Lil Wayne. 473, I need <laughs> a whole that, bottle. Get that scissor, purple drink. <laughs> and it's just the codeine too. The codeine has affinity for receptors that has that cough suppressant mechanism. It's not the opioid aspect. Yeah. Well, the promethazine, I think, is just to help with the nausea from the codeine. <laughs> <laughs> or or goes great with seven. We up, were getting apparently. like e scribes that were fraudulent somehow. Really? Yeah. I'm like, how is this even? How is this fraudulent? But we, sure we, was back in yeah back in the day. I remember people would write the they would write like antibiotic on one prescription pad and then they'd write oh I also need 473 mls of yeah per they've got the sig written out perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> the other one is like just like ABX on the other. Just anyone that you 
that you see fit. But uh, but coating does have a, a box warning because um, you're not supposed to use it in children. And you know specifically children uh, under the age of 12, but really 12 to 18 is still you have to use caution there. Um, if they have like sleep apnea or obesity, lung, any kind of like lung disease, like asthma or something. Um, and the thought there is that, especially for, for infants and whatnot, there's been case reports of infants dying because they were 2D6 ultra rapid metabolizers. So they had that polymorphism without knowing it, obviously, because unless you did pharmacogenomic testing, you wouldn't know. And so the patient uh, got it either directly or through like breast milk or whatnot and uh, ended up, rapidly metabolizing that into morphine um, because remember codeine's a prodrug so Mm -hmm. then uh the the respiratory depression would come on and you know without knowing what you know that we'd expect that so and younger patients were not using codeine um specifically do not no purple drink for the kids (laughs) ideally so that was the synthetic opioid or the uh natural occurring opioids we have semi-synthetic opioids like heroin um which in america is classified as a c1 which means it doesn't have a um, medical use or is not determined to have medical use um in this country i don't know anywhere else where they would use it i don't know yeah i don't think it's used medicinally there's some like there's others we have c1s where it's used elsewhere yeah depends on who you ask Depends on who yeah, that's true. I think the um, doctor outside Seven Eleven would probably <laughs> his his uh, his, license, his license is kind of up in the air though. <laughs> those, yeah, those gas station docs um, comes from the poppy plant, illicit drug, very addictive, abused by over ten million people worldwide. But the other more commonly used semi-synthetic um, opioids are the ones that we actually classify as being a C two, used to be a C three, um, like hydrocodone. Um, it's generic as a tablet, but also comes. Uh, as branded uh, in a tablet form, an extended release form as Hysingla, um, is branded in a capsule extended release form as Zohydro, um, and then of course is in other combination products. So frequently um, combined with acetaminophen um, as the generic for Lortab, Norco, Vicodin, all that kind of stuff. Um, also comes as a liquid version combined with acetaminophen. Then it is combined with a cough suppressant, chlorpheniramine, um, in the Tussinex cough syrup or the capsules. Um, the homotropin um, cough suppressant in the Tussagon tablets or the Hydromet. Um, I only ever prescribe the tablets for dogs. Well, and or, so, or, or, or I only ever dispense the tablets for dogs. I, well, I think it's because the the Hydromet, like the liquid version, has xylitol in it, so dogs can't oh, really? take it. Yeah. So I think that's why they, you see vets always writing for the tablets. The tablets. But uh, anytime you see it with an antihistamine like that, like the chlorpheniramine or the um, homotropine or whatever, that's because the you're using it there for, you're using the hydrocodone as the antitussive, the, the cough suppressant like colosan, and then the, the antihistamine for the other cold symptoms. Right. Um, but uh, it's, it is in and of itself a prodrug. Um, so it gets metabolized into hydromorphone, um, which we'll talk about as well. Um, but the, uh, the the acetaminophen component is you have to take into account that they're also taking like over the counter acetaminophen. Remember, like three to four grams per day would be the max, depending on who you ask. Um, there, the Hysingla uh, extended release, which is just the hydrocodone standalone, like Cole was saying, uh, does have a unique side effect where if the patient's on doses above 160 milligrams per day, you really have to watch the risk of QT prolongation. Um, and then patients who have, you know. Uh, hepatic issues, hepatic impairment, or if they're on, you know, uh, you know, cirrhosis or they have hepatitis or anything like that, you obviously want to avoid alcohol consumption because that can um, worsen the renal toxicity along with the opioids. And then if uh, thinking along the lines of metabolism, because hydrocodone gets broken into broken down into hydromorphone or metabolized into hydromorphone, we it's metabolized on the pathways of the CYPS two D six and three A four. So we do have to consider. You know, if the patient's on a uh, 3A4 inducer um, or inhibitor, then, you know, if their dose is stable on that and they stop the inhibitor or the inducer, that can lead to an issue with overdose. So we got to really watch those drug-drug interactions. Yep. Um, And it's a prodrug of hydromorphone, which is the next one we'll talk about. So hydromorphone comes orally or IV. Um, You'll know branded as Dilaudid is the immediate release. It has an extended release version called Exalgo, which can't be used in opioid-naive patients. It's contraindicated. Um, With the IV Dilaudid, uh, it comes as 1 milligram per ml, but there's also a higher potency of 10 milligrams per ml. So that would be a really unfortunate mistake to make. Didn't mention it with morphine, but the oral liquid versions have two different potencies uh, as well. So you want to watch out for that when you, those come through frequently, the, the 
Um, if it's being prescribed for an individual on hospice, they, they'll use, they use the higher potency a little more often. Uh, but it has a boxed warning to start with a low dose and use caution when converting from other opioids uh, because of the risk for overdose. Um, it may cause a little less nausea and itching, uh, maybe because it's uh, further metabolite, I just presume. I'm making that up. Um, but it's commonly used, you'll see it in the hospital, um, as a PCA with a lockout uh, or in an epidural. It's included as well. So I guess it wasn't morphine. It's hydromorphone in those epidurals. I think that it depends on, it depends on the anesthesiologist. Yeah. yeah. So oxycodone, uh, another one that we're probably all familiar with. Um, the IR formulations uh, are available as well as there's actually IR formulations with abuse deterrents in them. So like Roxibond, um, Oxeido is another one. And then the extended release uh, formulations that have abuse deterrents, quote unquote, um, are Oxycontin, which <laughs> we all know the story with that one. And then um, Zetamza. Is another one that starts with the one that starts with an X. I think, um, that that one is the more recent uh, approved um, version. That the dosing is a little bit weird too. So basically, like nine milligrams of um, Tams is, is equivalent to ten milligrams of oxycotton and so on and so forth. So you're saying cotton or cotton? Oxycontin is how you pronounce it. I say cotton just because out of bad <laughs> bad habits. So yeah, it's just I'm thirty what four. I'm just too late to change bad. He's habits talking now. about the when you open the the cotton the swab. bottle and the cotton the swab. That's the oxycontin. That's I the bet if you stuff. took that cotton ball, you'd, <laughs> you'd probably it. get some effect, right? So yeah. that's the oxycotton. Yeah, or it gets stuck in your throat. <laughs> yeah. Dip it in some some milk or something. You just suck on it. Have yeah. you seen that Netflix documentary, The Pharmacist? I have. I've heard really good things about it. No, it's really good. But it, it's about a, a pharmacist in Louisiana whose son overdosed um, and passed away. And so he was like on the road to catch his killer. And he found this uh, doctor who had like this pill mill in the early days of like dispensing a whole bunch mm -hmm. of Oxycontin. And he kind of took on Purdue Farm and all this kind of stuff. He was a bit eccentric, but it's, it's a good. It's I thought a good, it was going to be Batman and just go vigilante. I mean, that's pretty much what he did. He, he had glasses and he was a heavy set guy, and he's like, I'm a pharmacist and I'm going to take care of business. I'm out of here. Um, so, oxycodone, pro drug of oxymorphone, um, high analgesic effect, even though it has a low affinity for the mu opioid receptors, relatively speaking. Um, it has a box warning for um, initiation of CYP3A4 inhibitors that can increase the risk for overdose and lead to fatal overdose. Um, it also has 3 or 4 and 2D6 involved in the metabolism. Don't open the Extamsa ER capsules. They shouldn't be, um, or I'm sorry, they can be opened and sprinkled on soft food um, or used in a gastric tube. So that would be a positive um, if that needed to be done. You just can't break up, you just can't crush those little sprinkles. Don't that crush come out the sprinkles. There. Don't, never crush the sprinkles. <laughs> or jimmies if we were up north. You ever heard that? No. And that's what they called um, sprinkles. Really? Which our northern Jimmy's? listeners call them jimmies. That's weird. Yeah, somebody write in and tell Mike that I'm right about that. I've never heard that before. It's a thing. Um, and a renal or hepatic impairment, there would be dose adjustments with oxycodone. <coughs> All right. So <clears throat> oxymorphone, um, closely related to, <coughs> excuse me, guys, closely related to hydromorphone chemically, um, also has... Um, IR and ER formulations available as well as an IV solution. Um, patients who are elderly, um, renal de decreased renal function, decreased uh, hepatic function, all need to use very low doses to start um, because they can, you know, obviously have uh, bigger issues with overdose risk. It's, uh, it's recommended to take the oral versions on an empty stomach for absorption purposes. Um, and I would say probably not one you run into nearly as often. It's not seen to be more effective than morphine and some of these other options. Um, so typically speaking, I feel like the oxycodone would be the one that you'd see much more frequently than oxymorphone in, in most cases. Um, yeah, it is. Um, you, that was all about oxymorphone, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, Tapindatol is interestingly, it's similar kind of to tramadol in the way that it works, but it's a centrally acting mu opioid agonist. Um, it's also a norepinephrine and serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So this is the generic for Nucenta, uh, which comes in an immediate release version and Nucenta ER as well. Um, this can increase seizure risk and risk of serotonin syndrome uh, because of the action on the different uh, receptors. Uh, so be aware of that, especially with the seizures. Um, also caution and credit and clearance. But um, sometimes this can be a little bit better with pain associated with nerve injury, 
because of the different receptors that it acts on as well. Yeah, I've I've seen people who have like uh, you know spinal cord injuries. That's what's causing their actual back pain. Then this might be a better option for them because you're affecting that norepinephrine uh, activity. So and I think the norepinephrine is the primary neurotransmitter that's working on, even though it does affect both of them. Yeah. Um, and uh, you, it also has been shown to have a little bit less. Um, risk of the GI effects. Um, I've seen this used sometimes in patients who have just had like a appendectomy or something along those lines, some kind of GI surgery. Sometimes mm. I've seen this utilized for that purpose. Yeah, we didn't talk, we're obviously talking mostly about chronic and we didn't talk much about acute, but there is kind of a relatively newer CDC guideline that we didn't mention. It's mostly talking about just the safe use of opioids and limiting the use in acute instances to the duration that you needed and in chronic instances to follow up closely and you know only use it when it needs to be you can check that out but um it's mostly just related to safe prescribing habits for opioids. yeah yeah so merperidine when's the last time you saw that utilized i see it well I, I did see it not like as much as the others but i saw it was it being used for pain specifically or was it off-label use or something <sighs> I, if I, it's been a while if i recall it was for like short term i feel like it's pain. i feel like dentists yeah, if they anything, like that. the ones that use that particular drug for some reason. I don't know yeah. why that is. Yeah. But um, it's not something that's used all that often anymore or shouldn't be used all that often anymore for chronic pain. Um, it does uh, have a, a risk for serotonin syndrome because it does have serotonin effects if you're taking it along with multiple other serotonergic acting medications. Um, typically, if you are going to see this, uh, it's used sometimes post-op for shivering. Um, if patients are coming off of uh, anesthesia and whatnot, that they're having like post-op shivering, this can be utilized and um, it's effective in that that regard. But as a just general pain uh, medication that you're going to be taking chronically, probably not a good option. That's not. the hand-in-hand that the Google search isn't going to give you. You've got less urinary retention and negative effects, but also because it's crossing the blood-brain barrier, you're going to have increased serotonergic effects and all yeah. this kind of stuff. And it, you're not going to get that from a Google search. So as a provider, you got to go out of your way to make sure you're learning all the options, and you know, everything that that's involved in the options that you have before you. Yeah. AJ, you're on your soapbox today, huh? Yeah, that's I it. Like what it. about, have you guys He's used? On, I, I, wonder, I hope there's no providers listening because they're going to be like, this AJ guy's like, oh, oh God, getting me. Yeah. Well, so Cole's assuming we're not providers. <laughs> he's going by Medicare. <laughs> yes, you're going by Medicare. He's, go, he's going by Medicare definitions. People who can prescribe. Yeah. Okay, there you go. The Vorfinol. What about that as a phenanthrine? I haven't seen it. Ever? Not prescribed. So it's different in that it's not just mu uh, opioid receptor. It's mu, delta, and kappa. It's got the less CNS effects, less nausea, vomiting, things like that. But the difference between the receptors is that those mu and delta receptors will downregulate and be internalized. And then the action on the kappa opioid receptor still maintains. And so that's kind of, it's still working and it sort of helps to almost fake upregulate its own activity. It's kind of like those things that self-induce themselves. Carbamazepine. Carbamazepine. Yeah. So where is it at? Carbamazepine? No, no, no. no. That's right. Just talking about morphinol is the same. So it's a phenanthrine. So it's oxymorphone, oxycodone. Uh, it's a class. Hydrocom- yeah. It's a group of them. Phenanthrines. Is it, is it FDA approved in the U.S. at all? Yes. It is? Well, spell it for me. Levorphinol. Levorphinol. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yes, I have seen that. Um, it's seven times more potent than Yes, morphine. yes. Because that, that, we had that at my, the pharmacy, the, the one that I managed a while back, we had one really? thing I've, that. Really? I've never dispensed before. Hydrocodone, um, hydromorphone, those are all in that same class of drugs. The morphine-like agonist. Yeah, it's an oral agent, right? Yeah, yeah leave it's it IV2. Yeah, yeah, okay, cool. But it's an option. The same way that mepiridine is more potent than you know uh, morphine, levorfenol is more potent, but that's uh, people got to Google it. And when you're Googling, it's like, hey, what's, what's going on? Why don't we use this more? It's like, all right, so the most potent opioid activity you're going to get is from that mu opioid receptor. But once our mu opioid receptors are shot, you know, what else What else is next? Are we just going to keep up in this dose or are we going to try to go to a different option like levorfenol, which has delta and kappa opioid receptor activity too? I like it. Just you know, food for thought. AJ's on fire. He's bringing the heat today. You, you, give him, you give him one break from school. <laughs> That's it. I'm done. Um, okay. So buprenorphine, this is an interesting one. It has a unique mechanism of action and can also be used for opioid use disorder. Primarily, I would say. It's pretty much used for opioid use disorder, which is interesting to me. Well, I'll get into that in a second. But, um, 
to prescribe it, you have to have a, a selective prescriptive authorized provider waiver. You basically have to go through kind of like a training course. If you're prescribing it for opioid use. If you're prescribing it for opioid use disorder. True. So if you're prescribing it for chronic pain or for other pain disorders, you can without the, the waiver. And so your DEA number would start with an X if you've got that. Um, but because it, it can do this because it's got partial mu agonist activity and then it becomes an antagonist at higher doses. So it's difficult to like overdose on. Um, and it, it's a weak kappa antagonist as well. Weak kappa antagonists. Primarily oral is that um, generic option, but there is a butrans patch, which is used for pain um, and has a, a risk for QT prolongation greater than 20 micrograms. So if it's lower risk for abuse and a bit safer, why don't we use it as much? Is it not as effective for pain? I think it's the efficacy piece, but then one of the weird things that I've seen people doing is, and not a lot, but I have seen it where people will put a, you know, have their oxycodone regimen or whatever, and they'll be on a butrans patch on top of that, which completely defeats the purpose of, yeah. like there'd be no reason to do that. So just so we're all clear, the only the patch is the only one indicated for pain. All yeah. the other formulations are for substance abuse. And if you are going to use the patch, do not use other opioids with it. Yeah, because I, I I've tried to make sense of that, and there's no good reason to utilize that. Being a full agonist of the opioid receptor, and then buprenorphine being a partial agonist of the mu opioid receptor. It's like it's, it's just not going to bind. It's yeah. just right. gonna flow it doesn't make sense. But I mean, if it's if it's safer, it seems so, like I would want to go with that. Yeah, if you were going to use pain. it as a safer option, just as an alternative, sure. But I think it's the efficacy. It's the efficacy point. standpoint. Yeah. Okay, I got you. Um, yeah, I generally like the butrans patch better than the, the fentanyl patches. Partial agonism. I think whoever created the Suboxone dosage form, that that administration, is a genius. To have naloxone in with buprenorphine. Until so it you, gets broken, until you try to change the formulation. Yeah, I think that's genius. I love that. You didn't you didn't comment on that with the morpha bond and all those abuse deterrents. Uh, you don't I, like I'll those as much. It. I'll save it. Okay, I got right a special on. special place special love for, for buprenorphine for, for suboxone. I got you. Right so on. AJ jumped the gun, but there's a few different dosage forms. Suboxone being one, it's a film sublingual that contains buprenorphine naloxone. There's also Zubzolve, which is a sublingual tablet that contains those two, and Bunavale, which is a buccal film that contains those two as well. Buprenorphine by itself, um, we talked about the patch. It also comes as a subcutaneous implant, um, IV, sub-Q, sublocade. That's actually when we deal with it, um, our specialty pharmacy. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, oral, and then an oral film by itself would be branded as Belbuca. So I think, again, though, just to reiterate, if we're treating pain, we're just using the patch. Yes. All the other ones are going to be substance abuse disorder, yeah. specifically. Yeah. All right. Though I have seen it prescribed for pain before from yeah. a non-XDEA. Yeah. But as far I, as I what's think, recommended. Well, I think can I think isn't that can you do that without an XDEA with for if you're trying to say it's for pain like if legally? Said, if, well, I hope so, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure that if you said it was for pain and not opioid use disorder then yes. As long as you're okay with talking to the DA agent. Yeah, when they yeah. ask you why you did something like that. Yeah. <laughs> not you, but the provider. Right. The real provider call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, we'll, we're we're running out of time, but we'll uh, we'll discuss a couple of the synthetic opioids, specifically fentanyl. Um, very high potency, as we all know. Um, very lipid soluble, crosses skin, oral mucosa very easily. It's considered to be a hundred times more potent than morphine. And uh, for patients who are opioid tolerant, this could potentially be an option with great care taken and and safety and you know being considered but for an opioid naive patient absolutely not um, even someone who is uh, opioid tolerant and has been on opiates for a while if you do switch them to fentanyl it's 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 like recommended to, to basically do the when you do the dose equivalent you're trying to find the the same dose of what they've been on to decrease it by like 50 percent and have narcan on standby just in case and yeah. then to trade the dose back up just because it is so potent um you know the big counseling point just from like for those of you in dispensing and whatnot, if the patient is um, on a fentanyl patch, make sure that they're not adding any sort of like heat, um, whether it be a heating pad or even a heated blanket, things like that to the, um, the area where the patch is, because that's going to basically force that medication from the reservoir into the patient's systemic circulation and increase the risk of an overdose. Um, if the, when the patient's kind of taking the patch off, make sure they fold it and on itself, um, don't cut it open or anything like that because that'll again break apart that reservoir and medication is now no longer a slow release. Um, adverse effects would be like the bradycardia, uh, bradycardia, you know, muscle rigidity, dehydration, things like that on top of all the other standard opioid issues. Yeah. I don't think anybody should be prescribed or dispensed fentanyl without 
Narcan. Narcan. Oh, yeah. yeah I, I think decreasing the stigma around Narcan is important. But yeah. Which I'm, the, the pain management folks would, they would always prescribe it, not even just with fentanyl, but just with like these, these um, uh, opioids. But like the patients just rarely filled them, you know, even after like trying to commit something, they're like, oh, no, I don't need that. They just said they had to prescribe it. I think as a motivational interviewing point, like when they talk to us about it, they're like, hey, just like people with peanut allergies carry around an EpiPen, you should probably keep this for accidents. It's not because we think you're risky or medication is risky. Going back to the part about COPD or sleep apnea, those types of respiratory disorders that can increase the risk, I think taking away... The thought of like, oh, it only happens if you're abusing the medication. Yeah, I, I think that's part of that stigma. Right, and I think like, that, I'm not going to abuse it. I'm going to the take term it. overdose presumes that they're taking yeah, it not as much. prescribed. Right, but even as prescribed, depending on the situation, can cause an issue. So another one that you'll see out there is uh, methadone, and uh, this is one that has sort of like a variable half-life that can be anywhere from like 22 to 48 hours with repeated doses. Um, this is typically nowadays used for opioid use disorder as well. Um, the same like with the buprenorphine, this is actually has to be dispensed at a methadone clinic though. And, um, it's only going to be used for pain in patients typically who are opioid tolerant. Uh, it does technically have a little bit less side effects, um, from a constipation standpoint and some, you know, other things that are commonly seen with opioids, but that doesn't mean that that you know, you still will have to deal with those to some extent. Um, it uh, is one of those situations where if you have a patient who's on once a day methadone and you're not sure if they're being treated for opioid use or for pain, if it's once a day, it's pretty safe to say that it's going to be for opioid use disorder. Pain is usually dosed every eight to 12 hours. Um, so at least multiple doses. Uh, there's a Box warning for QT prolongation, um, and even you know case reports of t- torsades happening uh, with methadone, and uh, the variable half life I think makes it very difficult to to convert and like look for equivalent doses. So methadone is kind of a weird one that uh, is definitely not to be uh, taken lightly if you'd have never messed with con- dose, con- dose conversions and things like that with methadone. It's a racemic mixture, so that L isomer is like super potent and really effective. But the D isomer is way less potent, but it also is less has less uh, respiratory depression and addiction potential, things like that. So they half and half it, and then you know it's like a hey, wolf. Well, it's not as potent as it could be, but it also is not going to kill you, and it's long acting, which I think is cool. Yeah, but I, going back to as we're running out of time, but going back to uh, Cole's point, you know, not in AJ too, but not I, I would say not even just fentanyl. You know, giving them a prescription for Narcan, but encouraging anyone who has any kind of opioid is obviously what the CDC wants. Um, but even from a provider standpoint, pharmacist standpoint, whatever you want to say, at least encouraging the patient to be on that and then having a documentation that you had that conversation is important for covering your own behind. Um, but yes, from a safety standpoint, trying to get everyone access to Narcan is important and taking away the stigma like we were just talking about. Yeah. All right, so from a time standpoint, we don't really have time to go into management of con- opioid-induced constipation and all that. I think we've talked about that in some other episodes. We have mentioned that before. So, you know, make sure you check those out. But uh, we just kind of wanted, like I said, did a rundown of some of these different options. Um, starting off, again, non-pharmacological uh, and, and non-opioid uh, pharmacotherapy, if possible. Looking at comorbidities, looking to see whether it's neuropathic or some sort of other uh you know, underlying condition, and that can determine whether or not you're going to be going like the SNRI or the tricyclic route or anticonvulsant route. And then once we've kind of, you know, looked at some of the other options and seen if that's appropriate or trial and they weren't efficacious, then maybe considering an opioid for as short a time as possible and always reassessing the need for one um, along with any other safety parameters that we can utilize. But uh, as far as like picking between opioids, there's not really like great guidance uh, other than not jumping to something like fentanyl, yeah, um, maybe like, starting with uh, starting with an IR version. Yeah, an first. IR version, but there's no thing like that would say, okay, oxycodone is is more uh, is, is recommended over hydrocodone in this situation. There's not like any great guidelines in in regards to that, so it's kind of like more clinician specific and you know what the patient has access to and cost and all that. Yeah, lowest dose possible mm-hmm. for shortest duration is ideal, but. Of course, we're talking about chronic issues. So, and don't forget, don't forget Nucenta. If they do have issues with nerve damage and they are needing a strong opioid, then that one would be the option there. Yep. Anything else, boys? That's all I got. Sounds good. 
Um, so I want to make sure I mention before we close, and then we're, we're over time. So I apologize for those of you who are just listening to us get CE credit, but, uh, um, I want to make sure I shout out, uh, our sponsor pearls. Um, so if you guys have not checked out their app, uh, pearls, P Y R L S.com slash core consult RX, they have a desktop application that you can download now, as well as the one for your, your Android and uh, iPhone. And, uh, it's a drug information app that has all kinds of great pharmacotherapy charts and, uh, different things they've added some dosing um, regimens as well just recently they have a really short clinical pearls podcast that's been really nice and uh you know they great great group to work with and um so really appreciate them sponsoring the podcast check it out the link will be in the show notes but pearls.com slash core consult rx sign up for free and uh you get access to some of the, the algorithms and treatment charts and then if you like it you can always upgrade to the the, the full version but um make sure you check that out if you want like more uh, structured, um, you know, lecture style, uh, information, check out Patreon, um, patreon.com slash core consult RX. We have, uh, lectures on there for various disease states, along with all the PowerPoints and everything and, and pharmacotherapy, like exam practice questions. And, um, yeah, so some good stuff there. And, uh, remember if you're not a, a member of freece.com, definitely check out their unlimited membership and, uh, and we appreciate them working with us again. If you have any questions for the three of us, our emails will be in the show notes. You can reach us on social media as well. Uh, you can text us to the number in the in the show notes as well. And uh, we will do our absolute best to get back to you in a somewhat timely fashion. <laughs> but thank you guys so much for listening. We'll catch you guys in the next episode. Have a great one.